Dear Pediatric Ophthalmology Community, Welcome to this WSPOS session on genetics and systemic diseases. My name is Manza Tekaučić-Pompe. I'm pediatric ophthalmologist at University Eye Clinic, Ljubljana, Slovenia. Let me introduce our today's speakers. Our first speaker is going to be Dr. Tartarella from Brazil on congenital Zika syndrome, followed by Dr. Eduardo Silva from Portugal on labor congenital amaurosis, phenotypic features and treatment. Our third speaker, Dr. Elias Trabulzi from the States, will talk about five inherited retinal dystrophies you really should know. Dr. Sada Gopan from China on syndromes with congenital glaucoma. And the last speaker of this session, Dr. Part Shah from Australia, will talk about five rare eye diseases that can be treated by dietary control. Our two excellent moderators, Dr. Kessel from Denmark and Dr. Skanga from the States, will conduct a very interesting discussion at the end. So please stay tuned. Thank you to all of our speakers. What a wonderful content for this session at the WSPOS Connect 2. Um, as part of these uh, talks, as I was thinking through the types of patients that a lot of people are seeing around the world, a lot of things came to mind about um, management and early detection. And so what I wanted to pose, I think, to Dr. Trebulzi and also um, to Dr. Shaw is, do you have a particular biochemical workup that you prefer to do for your patients, either prior to genetic testing or if that's unavailable to somebody doing a workup? Uh, I can I can take that one if you like, Hannah. I there is no in my mind there is no such thing as a shotgun approach to biochemical treatments. Um, more more often than not, you have a pretty good idea about what the patient has from just putting together the clinical findings, and that really guides the testing. Um, I I recall one patient with gyrate atrophy where the clinical findings were so characteristic uh, and we did genetic testing actually and i i have to to say that you have to get the molecular testing for gyrate atrophy if you have access to it you cannot just rely on the clinical appearance and we couldn't find a mutation until we we sent uh, the sample to a research lab and they identified a cryptic intronic mutation that the actual screening did, did not find confirming our clinical diagnosis. The other thing about gyrate atrophy that I would add is that we, and I, I didn't know that until just a few years ago, uh, there are many, many patients who have uh, cystoid macular edema, more, more than you'd think. We've seen several, and uh, we add dorzolamide to the vitamin B6 supplementation and the dietary uh, restrictions that they have to go through. And those are pretty pretty uh, difficult to comply with. You find these patients have a very difficult time uh, to keep up with those, but uh, we follow them up with uh, biochemical markers and you know uh, levels of, I mean, of, of ornithine in their blood and so on. So there's no one shotgun. You guide your testing based on your clinical findings. Thank you, Dr. Trubulsi. Um, May I add something, Anna? Absolutely. 
Oh, uh, well, um, by the way, good morning, uh, or good evening, or good night to uh, everyone in uh, in the panel. Uh, it's uh, I'm, I'm really delighted to be here. The um, we, we, we have a very uh, peculiar and also we're very uh, lucky to have the heel prick tests in Portugal. And we've had this for decades now. And uh, this includes over 50 diseases, 50 conditions, and sometimes uh, we come across a few patients that have uh, that were born elsewhere in uh, in the world, and they present to us uh, with clinical findings that if you have enough knowledge, maybe you can make a difference. And I'm uh, recalling a patient with biotinidase uh, deficiency who was developing uh, a, uh, a an optic atrophy, and uh, just thinking about the possibility of giving supplementation of vitamin H uh, was enough to reverse this case of, uh, of uh, optic atrophy and to still, uh, well, bring this, uh, this patient back to uh, his normal vision. Excellent. Yes. It also makes me think about when we we're talking about dietary, you know, the patients who have refsum disease or paroxysmal diseases, right? Getting to that diagnosis. And then those that do have refsum sticking to the diet as, as Dr. Trebolzi mentioned for gyrate, you know, so not only are we getting our patients to that diagnosis, but helping them get to that dietary intervention, but that long-term reinforcement of the eye care and the screening and connecting to metabolic services is equally as important to make sure they're along that path that, that we helped get them to. And the other difficulty there, uh, Hannah, is finding the dietitian who, in the genetics department, who would know how to do that. Uh, yes. I, I recall uh, a, a cookbook that was put together at Hopkins by David Valley's group uh, that, I don't know, I hope it's still available, that you could give to patients with gyrate atrophy that would guide them into what foods they can have and how they can cook them and so on. So uh, the collaboration, as you just mentioned, with your genetics department and having on board the other people who know about these diseases, whether they're in neurology, whether they're in genetics, whether they are in uh, in a variety of, of uh, other departments, you know, you, you're, just, you're just an ophthalmologist. So, <laughs> so there, there's only so much you can provide. Uh, maybe you can provide the diagnosis, uh, that, that, or, uh, but, but the guidance and, and the management of the patient is, uh, is pretty complicated. The other conditions that I would add to the list of the treatable ones, because that they're not as rare, for example, as refsum diseases, cystinosis, that has not been mentioned today, but I would add that to the list because we certainly can, can help these patients. And, and uh, the mucopolysaccharidosis have been uh, mentioned and with the uh, bone marrow transplantation and gene, gene therapy, you know, you, 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 can, you can affect many of them too. And I'd like to um, also pose a question to Dr. Tartarello. If we think about congenital Zika, like you presented, um, you know, some of our other retinal um, infections can be almost a mimicker of inherited retinal dystrophy and, and confuse the diagnosis as you um, presented too. So um, when in a workup do you suggest, you know, aside with looking at uh, getting to a clinical diagnosis, when do you suggest an infectious workup? Are there particular indicators that you think about? 
Uh, well, we work it uh, with a team uh, when we have this um, oldest newborns with microcephaly. And at the beginning, we were thinking about any other infections disease. We didn't know it was a Zika infection. So we studied all other infectious disease. We were thinking about toxoplasmosis that we have also the macular um, scar. And uh, we have our genetic team, our genetic clinicians and pediatricians working with us because all those babies with microcephaly, it was a huge concern. We didn't know where they were coming from. And so we had tested them from all other infectious disease and uh, they were all negative. So, and also it was very different when we began to evaluate the eyes and there was there were uh, no inflammatory signs as we are usually used to see in uh, patients with toxoplasmosis. We have a large number of patients with congenital toxoplasmosis here in Brazil too. So uh, then anatom pathological studies came and showed really that there were virus and some tissues of the, the some fetuses. So we had to, to make everything all together to get to the real diagnosis of Zika. And also when we thought those huge numbers, like we had almost 5,000 babies born with microcephaly, the geneticists were very worried about that and concerned about that. And they studied those cases and none came from genetic causes. And we didn't have the Zika testing uh, at that moment, the blood testing. Uh, but it was very interesting. There were no genetic causes for those microcephalic babies. And then ophthalmologists could help them, could help the pediatricians and the geneticists to get to the real diagnosis as soon as we uh, could find, could have those clinical, those ophthalmological findings of this characteristic macular atrophy. Right, and it speaks to the power in, in numbers, which we don't often have in rare disease. So for you having 5,000 patients really helped get to the answer there. Um, we do have a question from the audience that I'd like to pose to Dr. Kartikeyan. Um, uh. People are asking, what's the genetic cause when you see asymmetry or phenotypic heterogeneity between two eyes? So they're giving a particular example of an Axenfeld anomaly in one eye and Peter's anomaly in the opposite. It is not basically a spectrum. Actually, uh, there are different modified genes which can have a different effect. So, for example, FOXY1 can cause also primary congenital glaucoma. It can also cause uh, anti-segment dysgenesis syndrome. So the spectrum would be a little bit different and we cannot expect the same findings in each eye. And actually last time also we had a talk on, uh, uh, so phenotypes like FOXY1 can mimic even aniridia-like phenotype. So they're different modified depending upon what is involved in the modified genes, they may have different presentation. So by looking at just, we cannot say this is a particular gene sometimes, yeah. Thank you. And 
Um, what about you, Dr. Shaw, when we think about um, causes, like you said, of lens dislocation? I know we see a lot of asymmetry and, and phenotypic heterogeneity across the genes that cause that. So in some of the conditions that you presented, is it um, equally as heterogene equally heterogeneous in those phenotypes? I think it can be quite asymmetric at presentation. Um, but um, eventually in most of those conditions that we talked about with the lens subluxation, both lenses do get involved at some point, um, but it's not uncommon for um, one eye to be involved much more severely than the other and the surgery to be even some years apart. Um, but um, I think uh, as to some other conditions like anterosegment developmental anomalies, there's a huge range um, and a number of different genes involved. Um, and as previously mentioned, they can be quite more heterogeneous than um, ectopia lentis. Okay, I think I have a question for all of you. Uh, we touched somewhat on how to manage these patients and whether to co-manage them with pediatricians or geneticists or uh, dietitians. But I think now we have a situation where we have a lot of emerging genetic therapies and they have one thing in common, which is that they're very expensive. And that means that for at least a large part of the world, these therapies will not be um, as accessible. And also in some countries, it might depend on the, um, the socioeconomic status or uh, uh, insurance from families. How do you deal with that in each of your parts of the world? The, this was the this was the subject of a, a paper and a discussion at the recent International Society for Genetic Disease and Retinoblastoma that Dr. Levin has has uh, conducted. I I don't know. I'd, I'd I'd like to hear what what Hannah has to say about that because she she's given it a lot of thought. I I certainly have. I I I don't know. I think it's there must be some obligation uh, for the for the drug companies uh, that uh, produce these and they've they've invested a lot in them evidently and they need to make a profit evidently. But, but there's also a social obligation to having patients who can't afford them and countries who don't have the resources uh, to, to get them uh, done. Some sort of a program with a sliding scale. We, we do it all the time when we take care of patients uh, and, and there are some who can't, don't have insurance, they can't afford it, we still take care of them. We, we have an obligation to do that. Yes, and I, I think that investment should be from the ground up because we're thinking about these specific genotype-driven therapies, yet genotyping isn't always possible. Um, so I think getting that level of investment in the regions where ophthalmologists are practicing who have the local expertise, the socio um, and psychosocial expertise in that given area or in that given culture, I think that that's important too. And not just saying, here's this expensive treatment we can give you on a sliding scale, because what if we don't know who could be eligible because we're not getting that investment either. So I think that's another um, interesting paradigm that we'll have to consider moving forward and these companies should consider as well. Education is the basis here because uh, it's it's really important not only to uh, to educate our colleagues, our ophthalmology colleagues, and uh, and other physicians 
but also patients in the general community, because uh, I mentioned in my talk that it's not the fact that you carry a specific mutation that will uh, immediately make you a uh, eligible candidate for uh, treatment. So that's point number one. And number two is that in, uh, for instance, in, in my country, in Portugal, there's a, a negotiation between the, uh, the pharma company and the government because the national health system uh, will, be, uh, uh, will be paying for, uh, for treatment itself. And uh, we, uh, when we were trying to negotiate this, uh, we came um, across some other examples of uh, conditions that take lifelong treatments, like the enzyme replacement therapies that we use for uh, mucopolysaccharidosis, for instance. And, and those, in the end, will turn out to be uh, way more expensive than, uh, than the single uh, treatment um, that we're using now for, uh, for, a specific, for a specific form of LCA, for RP65 specifically. And what about in other regions? Um, Dr. Kartikeyev, oh, what's the what's yeah. it like in China? So uh, having worked both in India and China and most of the time in uh, uh, what I see from my friends working in developing countries, uh, basically gene therapy, we just need to offer a, a word of caution to the patients. Uh, we need to give them hope, but not at the same time uh, uh, too much hope that they feel that is going to be available maybe in one or two years. So uh, from our side, mainly clinical evaluation, because as you said to the earlier point regarding the pediatricians and how to uh, work with them, I think every pediatric ophthalmologist should be able to make a basic head-to-toe examination of every kid, whether they come with a genetic condition or not. Uh, and just uh, uh, quickly scanning them while doing other parts of the examination is very critical. And then that may lead to a target-focused head-to-toe examination, then you pick up from some abnormalities of chromosomal markers in them. And then you know that this likely condition is there. Then because sometimes pediatricians accept unless until they're trained in genetics, because of the busy schedule, they may not be able to focus on what they want. So ophthalmology is a special area where, including radiology, neurology, we, we are able to give some valuable information to what exactly we want them to look for then we might be able to clinch accordingly the diagnosis or the management. So from the developing country coming to a clinical diagnosis and then screening the family members and then providing genetic counseling and then involvement of risk factors that involve other family members, these become more critical. So from the gene therapy point of view, I just tell the patient that this treatment trial is going on in this place. If we are able to identify your gene, we can find out if gene therapy is available. If it is there, I will write to them and see in the future whether they are eligible for the trial. So that is what uh, we talk to them. We cannot say that, okay, tomorrow, one year later, you will get the treatment. And the second thing we say that, uh, irrespective of the treatment, don't think that you will be treated of this condition. So things may get better. In your lifetime, there may be some form of treatment. So this is what my mentor, Dr. Levin, always says that, give them hope so that they move along with it. but don't create the over hope so that they feel that something is possible and become normal. So that is what I would suggest to them. Yes, I think managing those expectations up front, I try to do that in the pre-test genetic counseling uh, to make sure that when we you know, hopefully achieve a diagnosis, then we can make sure that any output of that genetic test, whether it's something that has an existing clinical trial or one that doesn't even have something on the horizon yet, 
that we're, we're managing that up front uh, with the families. I think that's an important discussion. And it looks like we have a, a few minutes left. Um, I wanted to pose the question to the panel. How important, because Dr. Kartikeyan just mentioned this, how important is it to you to examine the family members? Because we do that quite often. I'm curious how others are um, approach that in their practice when you're thinking about a genetic eye disease. You taught me uh, a lot about all of this stuff. So I, um, I'm following your um, teachings with Dr. Nishal and trying to examine all the family members. Um, it's been a bit of a challenge during COVID, actually. Um, we're only allowed one parent at a time. And often it's only the one parent that comes to the follow-up appointments as well. Um, but uh, as much as possible, examining uh, parents or possible carrier signs and siblings for um, signs of the same condition can be very helpful to making the diagnosis or at least um, pointing us in the right direction for testing. Well, whenever you don't have the parent available, you may always look at photos and ask for photos of the other, uh, of, of the other parent that is not in the clinic. It helps sometimes because there are some, uh, some minor signs that uh, may lead to the correct diagnosis or even to mode of inheritance, which is crucial sometimes. So that, that, is, uh, that is my two cents. I, I would add to that that it's uh, most helpful in some of the excellent diseases, especially with, uh, with albinism. Uh, where you, you want to separate the X-linked form from all the other recessive forms and examining the mother is, is critical. Same with Low syndrome and some of the others where the eye findings are, are characteristic. Um, one thing that has not been brought up uh, in our discussions today is how careful we have to be, and, and I'm sure Hannah and, and all of us are, are aware of that. I've been burned a couple of times by, by delivering uh, news to, to families and to patients in the presence of, of young ones uh, who would hear what you're, what you're saying, uh, especially, for example, in the, in the setting of an X-linked disease, choroideremia or X-linked RP, and they've seen their grandfather go blind and they've seen their uncles go blind. And here they are sitting in your chair and you're telling their, their parents in front of them that you know, they, they, they have a mutation in that gene. And you think you're doing the right thing by just telling them, but uh, the reactions from the children uh, are, are, could be really de devastating. Uh, so also keep that in mind. Uh, one thing that was, another question that was posed earlier about the uh, symmetry of, of the subluxation of the lenses, uh, I, I want to touch on the, the only one where I, I think there is, the potential for quite a bit of asymmetry is ectopelentis at pupillae uh, with Marfan and homocystinuria and, and wild Marcusani. They're pretty symmetric for the great, great, great majority of them. But if you see uh, uh, subluxated lenses and asymmetry and remnants of the pupillary membrane, your diagnosis is ectopelentis at pupillae. I just uh, have two points to tell on the family uh, thing. So in developing countries, one of the settings is that uh, the same family members may not be examined by the same consultant uh, because of various reasons. Uh, the parents may take one child to one consultant and the other child to another consultant. So it is very important for the pediatric ophthalmologist uh, and the organization to examine all patients of family by a single consultant so that they can find out any abnormality. Second thing is that 
Uh, I often notice that it is very important to often question women whether they are pregnant. Because they may have a condition, a first child, a genetic condition. They may not, uh, they may not even sometimes know in their early pregnancy that they are pregnant. So I recently had a patient who had ocular, a first son with ocular albinism four or five years before. I'm seeing the mother for the first time. And uh, she's already two months pregnant. So if we do not question, then because two months or three months, two months pregnant and then already having genetic condition becomes a genetic emergency to make a decision. So this often, this question needs to be asked by, uh, 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 of course, as uh, Professor Tabolsky mentioned, that it is important to be aware of the family members who accompany the patient. So that is how you plan and split the group and then uh, convey the information if necessary, make a separate consult with the mother alone, especially in excellent conditions. Right. Thank Perfect. Thank you, Dr. Kartikeyan. And to all of our presenters today, uh, certainly some clinical and management pearls, hopefully for everyone from the genetics and systemic disease session. We hope you enjoy the rest of WSPOS Connect to the World. Thank you, everybody. I would like to thank all the speakers and moderators for these excellent talks and this fruitful discussion. I'm quite sure we all learned a lot. I would really like to find the way to grant accessibility of emerging genetic treatments to all parts of the world. I think this might be our great project for the future. So for today, I would like to thank you for listening to our podcast. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.